everyone and welcome. We are glad that you are here with us tonight. My name is Laura Redford and I am on the board of the John A. Witso Foundation and I am the host for tonight's Come Follow Me Interfaith Conversation. One of the goals of the Witso Foundation is to inspire members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to engage in meaningful interfaith dialogue and community outreach in order to strengthen our local communities around the world. For our conversation this evening, we're going to talk about the book of Ruth from a Jewish perspective. You can find video replays of all of our events, along with links to podcast recordings of this interfaith conversation series at www.widsofoundation.org. There you will also find a donate button. And if you like the conversations and the series that we have been presenting over the last several years, or if you're a new friend and would like to support the foundation, we would gladly welcome it. I am so delighted to join Dr. Ora Horn-Prowser today. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Ora Horn-Prowser is the CEO and academic dean at the Academy for Jewish Religion, a pluralistic, rabbinical, cantorial, and graduate school in Yonkers, New York. She received her BA and PhD from the Jewish Theological Seminary, as well as a BA from Columbia University. She has published widely on the Bible, focusing on disability studies, gender issues, and literary analysis. She has also worked with the Melton Center for Jewish Education, the Davidson School for Education at JTS, and various educational institutions to develop curricula and approaches to Bible pedagogy for all levels and learning styles. Her book, Esau's Blessing, How the Bible Embraces Those with Special Needs, was recognized as a 2012 National Book Council finalist and as a gold winner in the 2016 Special Needs Book Awards. I have only recently learned of this book and I'm so excited to get a copy and read it. Welcome, Aura, we are so glad you're here tonight. Thank you so very much for inviting me. I've enjoyed our preparation and looking forward to a good evening. Likewise, likewise. One of the things that we talked about is that in the Jewish tradition, there are often several different kinds of interpretations of the same story. And you had mentioned the relationship between Naomi and Ruth, that there are lots of different ways to look at that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So first, just to know about Jewish approach to text. The Jewish approach to text is one in which, first we use our hands a lot, um, but <laughs> second in which we, we absolutely look for multiple interpretations and we have different methodologies that we use which lead to different interpretations. There is an adage that says that there are 70 faces to the Torah meaning that it's one Torah, we know that, but that we have almost endless approaches that we can use to get new and different meanings. And that process of continuing to come at the text with new approaches, new ideas, really, and the willingness and the desire to always look for new interpretations keeps the text very much alive for us. So it's very much a part of Jewish life and Jewish thinking to have multiple approaches. And there's not a need to dig your heels in for your approach or your idea because there can be multiple views and they don't have to be against each other. So that's just first, did you wanna say something about I that? Wanted to, I wanted to follow up on that. Is there, do you feel like there is a, 
either a strain of scholarship or a tradition to try to find consensus among those various interpretations, or do they just exist to make the text and the religious connotations more deeply felt and, and more just widespread? Yeah, no, it's really not about consensus. In fact, a traditional text that we study from called Mikraot Gedolot, it's a, it's the traditional text that is used. If you look at it, and I don't have it in front of me here, but you, what you would find is in the middle of the page is the text from the Bible, wherever from the Hebrew Bible, whichever part of the text it is. And then all around it are different commentaries. And the commentaries can be from different places and from different time periods. And sometimes they engage with each other. Most of them, they're pretty like they're medieval time period or even a little earlier. Sometimes they engage with each other, or but sometimes they are just different, you know, from they're not talking to each other, but to us, the reader, they're talking to each other, right? And so, no, our, our job is not to find consensus. Our job is to understand the different approaches. And, you know, you absolutely have the method that you like the best. You have the method that speaks to you the most. You have ideas that feel right to you more than others, right? So, so there's a lot of flexibility for the person studying, but we don't feel like we're looking for consensus as, as a rule. Well, with that background, tell us then a little bit about different interpretations of this relationship between Naomi and Ruth. Yeah, so this I always find really interesting because the, the traditional view of the Book of Ruth is that Ruth is this incredibly giving, kind, devoted, loyal, loyal, right? yeah. larger than life figure, kinder than life, I don't know what word to use there, figure who really gives up everything to help her mother-in-law. And and how blessed Naomi is to have Ruth do that for her. And that's a perfectly legitimate reading of the text, by the way. It works perfectly with the text and it's beautiful actually. So that is certainly one reading of the text. But another reading of the text is looking at Naomi, not as someone who is looking for help, but as someone who is so full of loss and so basically depressed by it that she's not ready to accept help. And she could even feel burdened by help. So when she repeatedly, when Ruth, at first Ruth and Orpah, but then Orpah goes her own way and Ruth continues to, to say she'll stay with her, when Ruth keeps saying things, Naomi keeps telling her, no, 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 you should go back. You should go back to your mother's house. You should go back to your own people. You should not be coming with me. And she gives all of these reasons. And some of the reasons are, they sound like for Ruth's best interest, right? That's where you belong. But some of the reasons also sound like, I can't handle this, you know? If you go back, that she at one point makes a, an assumption that Ruth is coming with her because she assumes that Naomi will have another child who will then be able to engage in leveret marriage. That is an idea that is in the Bible, that if a man dies childless, his wife is meant to have a union or marriage. There's different readings. 
with his brother. And the, the child of that union would be named for uh, the descendant of the sibling who died. Um, now, Naomi has no more children, so she can't do Leverett marriage for Ruth, right? But she's almost saying, what can I give you? Assuming you're staying with me because you want me to do something for you, because you think I can provide for you. And Naomi is just feeling so down, so lost. I mean, she had a husband and two sons all die. This is a tragedy. In a land that wasn't her own. Right. A tragedy. Yeah. Absolute yeah. tragedy. It's perfectly legitimate for her to be that low. Um, and so one way of reading it is is that she actually did not want Ruth to come with her. And she really wanted Ruth to stay in Moab. And Ruth was either so good that she saw beyond that, or you could say so needy that she felt the need to stay. And there's different ways of reading that. But it's quite stunning that when, when Naomi and Ruth come back to Israel, and all the women come out to greet her, right? And they're like, and they're all a little shocked, probably because Naomi doesn't look as great as she looked when she left. And maybe she looks And she's brought a Moabite daughter-in-law with her. And she's brought her. a Moabite and she doesn't have the men in her life, right? All of yeah. these changes. Said, and they say, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasantness in English, right? The Hebrew word Naomi means pleasantness. Call me bitterness. Mara means bitterness. Call me bitterness because God has made my life very bitter. And then she continues saying, I left here full and I, God has returned me here empty. And I always find this stunning because here's Ruth standing right here next to her. And she says to everyone, I'm empty. I, I am being returned here empty. She doesn't say, hey, everybody, here's my daughter-in-law, Ruth. Let's welcome her in. She basically, with Ruth standing here, says, I'm empty. Now, I understand that because of her absolute depression at this time. But there's a real question as to whether she wanted Ruth to return with her. And what's interesting is she doesn't actually embrace her, and I mean figuratively, until Ruth says, I'm going to go out gleaning. And then Naomi says, oh, go my daughter. Like that's an embracing word to call her my daughter. But it's after she realizes, wait a minute, this is not all that I now have responsibility for Ruth. This is that Ruth is going to, you know, be a partner with me in responsibility or even major player in the responsibility. So I think that's a turning point for Naomi either way in seeing that there's benefit to Ruth being with her and to embracing the concept more and embracing her as a person more. I think that's so interesting. It's a perspective I had never considered before. And so I think it's really interesting to think about. We had chatted a little bit about you know, I'm trained as a historian, so I was thinking, tell me about the context, and let's talk about what was it like for women in this time period, and what were their options, really, and and then you had made a comment, we can, we can address that for sure, but you had also talked about in the Christian Bible that Ruth follows judges, and in the Hebrew Bible, it is in a different place, 
and that that really has a different kind of bearing on how you enter the story. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so the order of the books in the Christian Bible and the Hebrew Bible is different. And in the Christian Bible, it's very much a historical order at this point in the Bible. And so it goes from Judges to Ruth to Samuel, which makes perfect sense, by the way, because the book of Ruth starts with in the time of the judges. So it makes perfect sense that the book of Ruth would come after the book of Judges and the book ends with the birth of David. And so that leads right into the book of Samuel, right? So, so from a, you know, historiographic point of view, it, it, totally fits in between those two books. But when you read it that way, it's actually quite interesting because the book of Judges, which is a very rich book on its own, ends with a lot of horrific stories and specifically- A lot of violence towards women. Violence towards women, exactly. We go from a terrible story in Judges 19, where there is a concubine who, Basically, I hate to, you know, apologize for saying this, but it's in our Bible. She was gang raped and she died. They cut her up into pieces and send the pieces around to show everybody what a terrible thing that happened. So they disown the tribe of Benjamin. But then they say, but wait a minute, the Benjaminites now have no one to marry. So then they kidnap uh, hundreds of women to give them to marry the, the Benjaminites. So if you just think about what's happening in the last few chapters of the book of Judges, it's, it's a horrible section for women. And I want to put in a commercial for one minute, which is I really don't believe that the Bible is a negative book toward women. And I just want to say that because I know I'm like looking at this little piece, which is, but I think it's important that, you know, there are men who do well in the Bible. There are women who do well in the Bible. There are men who don't do well in the Bible. There are women who don't do well in the Bible, right? And there are many women who are strong and powerful and make real differences. So so I just want to say, I'm not looking at that one section as an example of, and this is how women are treated in the Bible. So I, I just want to- Well, and I think Ruth that. is going to be an excellent example of that, foreshadowing the last question I'm going to ask you about oh. <laughs> in our conversation. <laughs> Okay, we'll get back to that. (laughs) Um, So when you think about the book of Ruth following the book of Judges, then what you see is here they are, women traveling alone, right? Which sounds scary anyway, but if you didn't have the context of the book of Judges, I think we would already be uncomfortable with these women traveling alone. And then in the context of the book of Judges, not the whole book of Judges, but the part that comes right before this, Uh it sounds terrifying, not just potentially problematic, but actually really scary. So now none of that violence makes its way into Ruth, right? It's not it's not there in the story. There is nothing in the story where the women say, but oh no, what's going to happen if we travel alone, right? There's none of that in the book itself, which is also quite interesting, by the way. But I'm just looking at it in the context of reading in order. So that is what we would see. So in, tell me what book precedes Ruth in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, so in the Hebrew Bible, 
Ruth is a part of a five book grouping called the Miggy Lote, which means scrolls. And there are five books. They are, and here, this is them in order. Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And each of these books is then read on a Jewish holiday. So there is a, a liturgical role for each of these books, which is you know separate and not separate from their biblical role. But if you, again, if you're just looking in order, right, then Ruth is preceded by Song of Songs, which is a book of love, which is a book of equality between the man and the woman, you know, which is a very different lead-in than we have by, you know, leading in from the book of Judges. So, so that's interesting as well. I agree. And tell me about the holiday that the Scroll of Ruth is then part of. Yeah, so um, it's actually coming up in less than two weeks. Um, So this is very timely, but Book of Ruth is read in the holiday called Shavuot, which is the festival of weeks. And it is a harvest festival, but it is also a festival that we celebrate the giving of the Torah. So it's called weeks because we count the weeks between Passover and we actually count the days and weeks between Passover and Shavuot. And um, traditionally people as part of evening prayers count every day what num- what day we are on in that period of time. And then we have the holiday of Shavuot where we really celebrate the giving of the Torah. So some people look at the book of Ruth as fitting in with Shavuot because they say that Ruth took on her Israelite connection and belief in God and connection with God in the book. And we celebrate the giving of the Torah and Mount Sinai, which is again, a time where we celebrate our accepting of the Torah. So some people make that connection. These connections are not written in stone. Yeah. So, But I love that. I had never, I mean, I'm not ever going to look at Ruth the same knowing that 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 is the book of scripture used to celebrate the giving of the Torah, right? To speak about the Bible being kind towards women or that, or that women are not just merely oppressed in this text, right? That, that it is through her story that that celebration occurs, I think is a really beautiful commentary on, on women and their role in, in, in you know, reading and interpreting even scripture. Yeah, absolutely. I should say we also read parts of the Torah. So there are also specific readings from the Torah. So it's not the only place, but it is absolutely right in there. That's fascinating. Wow. Thank you. Okay. Let's talk about the question of who holds the power in the story and and who is like, spoiler alert here, Ruth is the powerhouse in this story. (laughs) I'm sure all of our guests already knew that, but explain why you think that is the case. Yeah, so there's a few different things. The first is what, if you just go even chapter by chapter, you know, which each chapter is like a a scene, really, right, in this book. So in the first scene, Ruth is holding the power because she's the one deciding that she's going to go back with Naomi. And no one, you know, makes her do it. Uh, you know, it's it's really very voluntary 
And as I said before, almost against Naomi's wishes, right? So, so right from the beginning, Ruth is really making her own decisions as to what she's going to do. Now, I should be clear, until the time where, you know, the beginning verses where they get married and they, they move to Moab, they get married, and then the men die, we really know nothing. That's just like laying out the story. So we, we don't know anything about that time. So I'm talking about after that time. Then when they get to Israel, they get back to Israel and Ruth and Naomi return. It was Ruth who decided to go gleaning. It was Ruth who ended up in the right place gleaning. And she ends up in the place where it's her relative Boaz. She doesn't know it's the relative, but she finds out. But the truth is when, when Ruth, when Boaz realizes that Ruth, who she is, right, that she's gleaning in his, you know, field, and, and he realizes who she is, he's, he knows that they returned, he already knows. So why didn't he initiate, right? He never said, Oh, these women relatives of mine who don't have any food just returned. Why don't I go bring them a casserole? You know, he doesn't do anything like that. He absolutely waited and reacted nicely once she initiated, but Ruth did the initiating. So, so I think that's really significant there. When we move on to the scene with the threshing floor, and that is where Naomi encourages Ruth to, she encourages her to go down to the threshing floor where Boaz is. And basically Naomi creates a seduction scene you know, you have to wash and put on your fancy clothes and anoint yourself and then watch where he goes and then go lie down with him, right? She's creating a whole, what do you call it? A whole seduction scene. That Ruth, yeah. yeah, basically that, and, and Ruth, you know, this is one of my parts I really love in the book. And Ruth says to her, I'm going to do everything you told me to do. I'm listening to you. I'm going to do everything you told me to do. And then Ruth doesn't do it that way at all. Ruth does it her own way. And her own way is to go down there. She watches where Boaz is. She goes and lies down with him. But she doesn't create a seduction scene. She does uncover something. The book is, is euphemistic Clear. as yes, to what yes. she <laughs> uncovers. But... But she doesn't get into a seduction scene. She just starts talking. And she says, you're a redeemer. You need to do the redemption. This is your job. You know, she, this is not a seduction. This is telling him what his responsibility is. And that's just fascinating because that was not Naomi's plan. But it's Ruth's plan and it works. And it's not till the end where it changes a little bit. And that's when the men have to take over and Ruth goes home and Naomi basically says to her, sit tight. Basically they're taking care of it at, at this point. And that's when it has to go through the city gates and the witnesses and the men in the so city the gates, right? The legal fall, process right? has yeah. to happen. But up until that point, I think Ruth is calling all the shots, whether she's obvious about it or not. She's the one making this work. She's the one making Naomi's life okay. Uh, remember the book ends with Naomi 
now having a grandchild. And so, you know, Naomi starts the book empty and ends the book full, right? Now, it doesn't make up for all the loss, but it's a return to some life. And, And Ruth is the one who made all of those steps happen. So it's it's helping her dead husband because it, you know, keeps his lineage. It helps Naomi, right? It's, it, it actually makes Boaz happy, right? So, but Ruth is the one making all these steps happen. Well, and I think that you had expressed too, kind of the kindness that it was to Naomi to tell her that she was gonna do it. Like, I'll follow exactly what you say just to make Naomi feel better and then go and do it a different way. Yeah, I think there is a, there are a number of places where Ruth, um, you can see that she adds words or leaves words out in order to make sure Naomi feels a part of things, whether that she's listening to her or when Boaz kind of give her the sense that things are going to be okay. And she sends him, he sends her back with all this food. And this is in the threshing floor scene. She comes back and makes sure that what she says to Naomi is very inclusive. And that Naomi should not worry that she doesn't say, hey, Naomi, don't worry. But the language is very inclusive at that point, almost quoting Boaz inappropriately, you know, like incorrectly, not inappropriately, but incorrectly to make sure that Naomi feels included and that she shouldn't worry that Ruth is going to end up with Boaz and now leave Naomi out of it. So she's very generous. I mean, even if you see her as needy in the beginning, it doesn't take away that she is devoted and generous and kind and loyal and good throughout this book. She is a, a remarkable model woman. Indeed, I agree. Tell me about how this book ends and what are your takes of the interpretations in, in Jewish culture do you find most interesting about it? Yeah, so there's a number of things about how the book ends. One interesting piece is that it's Ruth's baby, but the baby basically becomes Naomi's baby and is described as Naomi's baby. And, you know, not literally, right? Like yeah. everyone knows it's Ruth's baby, but the, the sense is that Naomi takes the baby, they name her, you know, Ruth kind of is absent from the ending, which is very interesting. Yeah, and here's where I wish we had more information, right? Like, did yeah. we have a particularly difficult labor and now Naomi is stepping in and caring for her and caring for the baby because she couldn't, right? I was like, there's so many little details that I want that we just sort of get the broad brush strokes of, we don't of have these women them. and their relationship to each other. Yeah, we really don't have them. But what we do have at the end is the genealogy that takes us from really, at the end, the genealogy goes in both directions. It takes us all the way back to Genesis, whether it's in the Judah and Tamar story, where there is another questionable birth that leads ultimately to this relationship. And it mentions Rachel and Leah, right? So it takes us back to Genesis, but it also takes us forward to King David. So there are a couple of interesting things here. One of them is just 
a really interesting question, which is why would the Bible want to give David an ancestor who is a Moabite? And that's just a really interesting question because the Moabites in the Bible were not just non-Israelites, they were considered kind of a negative people. And the Israelites had some bad blood with the Moabites and you weren't allowed to marry them. Like that was one of the laws is that you weren't allowed to marry them. But here we have, you know, Ruth. King David David's, coming very directly from Ruth, from the, Moabite, Ruth right? the Moabite. And you can say that Ruth made herself and allied herself with Israelite people, which she did, right? Your God is my God. Your people is my people. She said all of those things. But what's interesting is throughout the book, she is referred to as Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, right? It's, it's like hammering it into your head that she's a Moabite. It is not saying, okay, in chapter one, she allies herself with the people. And from then on, she's Ruth or Ruth, the daughter of, of you know, the daughter-in-law of Naomi or Ruth, the wife of, you know, none of those. She just keeps being Ruth, the Moabite. So the, it's clearly important to the text that we remember that she's a Moabite. So the question is why, right? Like, like, what do we do with that? And there are a couple of things that people say. One thing, if you're just asking like Jewish approaches to this text. So one thing the rabbis you say is that even though you were not supposed to marry a Moabite, you were not supposed to marry a Moabite man, but the same law doesn't apply to marrying a Moabite woman. So that was one way they kind of got around this is that issue? because maybe Israel was scattering or, or moving to find other opportunities? And so therefore, in order to marry, you were most likely going to be outside of the covenant? You know, I don't think so. I, okay. I, I mean, yes, they. I think when there was plenty of marrying that, you know, women from different cultures and they became part of Israeli culture. I think this was a way of just kind of fixing this problem um, was to talk about it that way because it's a problem, you know, otherwise. So there are different interpretations of what to do with this. On the one hand, you can say that who better as an ancestor than Ruth, right? Because of her goodness and kindness and devotion and, you know, so many good qualities. So who better to have as an ancestor? There are others who say that some people see the book of Ruth as being a response to the time, this is more of a historical answer, but a response to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah because the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is the return from exile, right? The Babylonian exile was in the sixth century BCE and the return from that exile, which would be, you know, could be the latter half of the sixth century, the fifth century, different parts. At that point, what we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because they're from that time period, it says that there was a tremendous fight against intermarriage. And they were, people were told to get rid of their foreign wives and either not marry foreign women or to literally get rid of the foreign women they had already married. So some people read the book of Ruth as being a response to that time. 
saying, you're saying that we need to get rid of all these women. What would have happened if we got rid of Ruth? If we got rid of Ruth, we wouldn't have had King David. So, so some people read the book that way. And, and that's interesting as well. But one more interesting, if I can do yeah, one more. Yeah, please do. Oh, I find it fascinating. Too. There's, there's what I think a fabulous reading of this section at the end of the book. This is by a scholar named, I think, Stanley Fish, pretty sure. Um, and what he said is that if you look at these genealogies, what we see is where does Moab come from? Moab comes from the union of, of Lot and his daughters. Remember when they ran away from Sodom, they thought that the whole world was destroyed, right? They didn't just think that their town was destroyed yeah. because they thought their whole world had been destroyed because everything they were looking at was destroyed. was destroyed. So they thought that they needed to repopulate the species. So his daughters slept with him and became pregnant. And one of them gave birth to Moab. So Moab, that's, you know, Ruth's side of the descendants. Then we have the story of Judah and Tamar. And the story of Judah and Tamar is, again, a Judah had sons that this is in Genesis. This is actually smack in the middle of the Joseph story. And Judah had sons. And the first son died, was married to Tamar. The first son died. So she gave, he gave through leveret marriage Tamar to the next son. That son died as well. And he didn't want to have his third son die. So he told Tamar, you go live somewhere else. And when my son grows up, I'll, I'll do the leveret marriage. But he didn't um, intend ever to make that happen, right? Because he thought that for whatever reason, his son would die if he married Tamar as well. And so Tamar actually took matters into her own hands. And I'm not going to go through the whole story, but there's another union there that leads to the child, Peretz, that is the ancestor of Boaz. So when you get mm. to the Ruth story, you are looking at a history of, let's call them unusual liaisons on unusual births in cases where it seems like they're inappropriate and it seems like they shouldn't be happening. And yet, if any one of those didn't happen the way it did, we would never have had King David. So it goes into a whole question of how do we look at biblical history or historiography from this perspective of how each little piece leads to things that you would think they have nothing to do with. And if anything had changed, if anything had gone wrong along those ways, or almost if they hadn't done what seemed wrong, we never would have had King David. So it's this real sense of God's role in what they often call Heisgeschichte, like salvation history, in all looking at the Bible as a big whole. And I find that very moving as well. Strange, but very moving. Well, I think it's a beautiful concept, right? That these are, this story then is representative of situations that defy the social norm and a God being able to, to use them to get to the thing that, you know, needs to happen. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and in each of those stories, the women take leadership roles. Like they don't take leadership roles like in the uh, social structure, but they take, let's call them the assertive roles. In they are agents these of themselves, happen. right? They yeah. are yes. doing what is going to be best for themselves in this situation, given right. the social circumstances and the religious community and the social norms and all of those things. They are finding the way that will best meet their needs right? and are, are very much agents and not being people. We would say in the church to be an agent and not to be acted upon. Mm, absolutely. Very nicely way of saying it. Yeah. I yeah. really like that. Yeah. It is just about time for us to switch into questions, but I wanted to ask one of my own before we do, which is we've talked a lot about women and I'm so glad that we have. Is there a particular takeaway or again set of takeaways from this book that you think are useful for men or yeah. is it really just about here's a great story of women even though they're not as many women in the, the both the Hebrew or the Christian Bible as there are men you know I think a beautiful takeaway about men in the Bible or in the, in this book, I, I meant to say. So Boaz, even though I wish he had been more assertive in chapter two, he does step up, you know, when, when he's confronted. And one of the beautiful things is that similar language and imagery is used to describe Boaz that is used for God in terms of sheltering under wings you know, that phrase is used both for Boaz and for God in the book. And there's a few different places. And so what I love about that is it really accentuates the fact that humankind's job is to be God's agents or agents of God will, of, of doing what God will is whether they know it or not and that's one of the good things about this book is they don't always know it right we don't see god as being very active in this book god's name is all over the book all the older people are constantly blessing the younger people in god's name so god's name is all over the place tons of blessing happening but um but we don't see god you know acting too much we have a little bit a few places but not all over but we have the people acting doing god's will and so we definitely see that in the language about boaz and i think that's very beautiful as a takeaway in terms of what is our job right our job is to act in a way that fulfills god's plan and, and fulfills God's plan on earth. And in terms of, you could say that in terms of many things here, it's in terms of taking care of those who need help and those who are needier than you are. And maybe it's not about waiting for God to come and tell you what the solution is supposed to exactly. be, but you just start working and God will help you figure out or make right. happen his will as you start to exercise some sort of decision-making process or action yes. and not just sit there and say, well, I'm just waiting for God to tell me what to do. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's transition to some of the questions in the Q&A. And if there are any more, please feel free to add those there to our audience. So another question here is, though the book of Ruth takes place in the period of the judges, 
tell us a little bit more about the relationship between Israel and Moab during the period the book was composed and how that is reflected in the book? You know, that's a very hard question because <laughs> that's assuming we know when the book was composed. And we really don't. So it's not like Ruth asking, was keeping a diary that we right, have record so of. So we right? really don't know. If yeah. we are saying that this book is early from the period of the judges, the answer is no, we had a really bad relationship with the people of Moab. If you're, but if we're reading it as a response in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, then you know we're talking about a totally different time period. So I don't think we can authoritatively say what the relationship is. But what here's what I would say is the Moabites in these this, you know, a good part of the certainly throughout the Torah and in references after the Torah are usually not the friends of the Israelites. Like there are so you know there were certain things that happened and they became emblematic of certain idolatry. So I would say that in general, Moab would be considered a negative relationship. But, but in terms of exactly when, that I'm not willing to, you know, put a date on. Excellent. What do you think about the idea that Ruth had a connection to the Jewish covenant? And is there any commentary that has focused on her prior conversion quote thy god my god i'm not sure i understand the question well let's talk about she right is going to follow naomi and she says right. that my god will be thy, your god will be my god right henceforth and i will be yours and and then they're going to continue and go to israel so is that an indication that she has joined in Yes. with covenant okay. israel i know you don't like the word conversion we talked about yeah. that but um, <laughs> yeah you know tell if us more I'm, about that yeah so if we are looking from a traditional jewish perspective the answer is many people do use the word conversion and how ruth is the first conversion the reason I don't like using the word conversion is because I think it's anachronistic. I think there was no conversion at this time. So if we call Ruth the first conversion, where we're talking about a much later understanding of conversion and putting it on this, this text. But what I do feel comfortable saying is she very vocally and clearly allied herself with the Israelite people. And she did it in terms of if we look at that that section, you know, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you sleep, so she's she's connecting personally, right, in terms of familial. But then your God is my God. Your people is my people. I just reversed those. Sorry. Wherever you're going to be buried, I'm going to be buried. Think about what that means, right? That that's not just a little thing, right? That that's talking about your your whole understanding of what it means to be buried somewhere right well and that um, i'm going to be with you the entirety of my life yes absolutely right? and then basically swearing when it says it's like a oath formula so it's basically swearing you know taking an oath that nothing but death would part them i mean this is the most beautiful statement you can imagine in terms of her her stating her devotion to Naomi specifically and Naomi as, you know, 
a member of a bigger people. So I absolutely think she is allying herself with Naomi and with the Israelites. So when I don't use the word conversion, it's for anachronistic reasons, not because I don't think she is taking those steps and, and making connections to God. I mean, she's referring to God and making connections to God. So, so I think it's, it's really quite beautiful. Well, and I think, right, what is, I am aware, just having had a neighbor who converted to Judaism, that there is a very specific process that must be followed and, and those kinds of things. Um, and if that wasn't in place in the time of Ruth, then what other mark of conversion could there be other than a lang uh, an oath language, right? Because yes. isn't that what a, a covenant with the God of Israel is, is a promise and an oath to, to follow? And then, right, he's going to bless the Israelites in return. Yeah, covenant has a lot of pieces to it, right? But yes, yes. absolutely taking, you know, she takes this seriously. And she treats it seriously and she initiates, which is so beautiful. This is not someone saying to her, well, if you want to come with me, then here's the things you have to do, right? It was all initiated by Ruth. It was not agreeing to something. You know, she, she is the one who took all these steps. So yes, I think it is absolutely a beautiful placing herself in the context of the Israelite. One of our participants here wants to know, what is Ruth's name in Hebrew? Oh, so the name in Hebrew is Root. It ends with a T sound, but it sounds the same. And the names in, in this book are all interesting because most of the names in this book have meanings. Now, in general, Hebrew names often have meanings, mm -hmm. but they don't always, they're not always relevant. But in this book, as I, I mentioned that section before, where Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, right? She's saying, my name was Naomi, which means pleasantness, but don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara because now I'm bitter. So she, in a sense, is telling us to look at the names. And if you look at the other names, Orpah, the, um, the, the, other, daughter, the other daughter, or Oref is the back of the neck. So what's her most significant action? She turns around, right? And so her name means the back of her neck. Boaz, in him is strength. So he is the one who has the official power to make these things happen. And the two husbands who die, Machlon and Chilion, basically mean sickness and death. And so the names all mean something. And the one that doesn't work so well is Ruth. And people have struggled to find ways to make the name Ruth mean things. And there's been, you know, some people say, oh, it's related to the word for friendship, but it doesn't really work with the Hebrew. And then some people say it's related to the word Rivaya for fertility which works a little better, but still not amazing. So the truth is these other names all are just like simple to translate and how they fit in the book. Ruth, we, we work on it and people come up with things, but it's, it's not as, it doesn't really work the same way. I kind of love that because isn't that an invitation then to put your own meaning and interpretation on Ruth? I mean, if the other names have such clear 
meanings in them and Ruth's doesn't. It just feels like an invitation to. You know, it depends how you want to look at that. It, from an interpretive point of view, you can do that. I think it depends on your approach to interpretation. The other ones are, are straight in there. That's what the Hebrew means. So it leaves you room to interpret how you want to understand Ruth. I think that's really true. It also, in some ways, sometimes makes you think that Ruth was like the first part of the story and maybe the story was written around her, you know? And so I, I don't know. I like that. I had to look up this word really quickly to ask this question. <laughs> Can you talk about Boaz as the Goel, G-O-E-L? Yeah, so that means the redeemer. So Boaz is supposed to be the redeemer. And this is actually a little complicated because if you look at the laws of leveret marriage in the Torah, it doesn't say go to one brother, another brother, another brother, then this cousin, then that cousin, then, you know, it basically talks about brothers. And the laws are about brothers, you know, it doesn't give any indication that you can go beyond the brothers. But when you read in the book of Ruth, everyone seems to take it for granted that you kind of keep going in the order of relationships until you find somebody who's willing to be the redeemer. Yeah. Um, and, and doesn't Boaz even have to sort of check with somebody else to make sure yeah, that they don't want to take the role on exactly. and then he will, right? So it's an interesting thing. So some people say it's almost like the difference between like law in the city and law in the rural areas where, you know, it may have been might be a little different out there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think what's important is that in no way is the book saying we're doing this and it's against our system. They're, they're absolutely presenting it as this is how the system works. So wherever they were when they were writing this, this was how, how the, the system, system worked. You know, it was, that was the norm. So Boaz, it, it does have to, there is, it seems like there's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, um, royal families that have, you know, it's very specific what, what place you are in, right? I think it's kind of like that. And so there was, there was someone ahead of him who Boaz almost had to like trick him out of it because first he was going to do it. And then Boaz says, well, if you do, you know, if you take Ruth, you also have to deal with this and deal with that. And the guy goes, okay, I don't want anything to do with it. And, and then Boaz says, okay, I'll be the redeemer. So, so Boaz had to finagle his way in there a little bit, but, but he was absolutely in the line of redeemers. And he was the one that was meant to be, you know, in the book, Ruth is called an Eshet Chayil, which is a woman of valor. The same phrase that's used in the Proverbs section about a woman of valor, whatever, 31 or whatever. In another place in the book, Boaz is called an, an, an Ish Chayil, that he is a man of valor. And so it's almost like the book, you know, it's a little fairy tale-ish, they're meant to be together. You know, they're, they're described using the same language. So they were the ones who were meant to be together. And we just had to get the other redeemer out of the way so that the ones who were meant to be together could be together. I find it really interesting that the book uses that language. And, and I think a general Christian interpretation and certainly Latter-day Saints would fall into this is that it's a foreshadowing, right? For 
Jesus Christ, who we would consider to be the redeemer and, and then make that connection backwards. So I think that there's some interesting more things to flesh out there. But we are shortly running out of time. <laughs> I'm so sad about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with a last question, Aura, and feel free to expound upon it for a minute or two. We've got about three minutes left. One of our listeners says, I'm just curious, what is Aura's favorite book in the Jewish Bible? And, <laughs> and I want to know the answer to this question, too, as someone who has studied it so thoroughly and written about it. Do you have a favorite book of scripture? That's a really lovely question. Thank you for that question. And I'll tell you something why I love that question, even though I don't have a great answer for it. Because my view of relationship with the Bible as we study is that we should have an intimacy with it. And I, I use that word that we, we want to have an intimacy with the text. So we should have a favorite section. Ruth is one of my favorites because I think Ruth has just this beauty of language. Like you can read the book of Ruth and talk forever about every word because of the, the beautiful literary structure of, of the book. So Ruth is one of my favorite books, but beyond Ruth, I'm a narrative person. I like narrative texts more than poetic texts or prophetic texts. So I would say, I'm gonna answer it this way. One of my favorite characters in the biblical text is Esau. And he, Esau is the one who brought me to my work bringing together disability studies and biblical studies. And I've always felt that he was someone who got a raw deal in interpretation, not in the Bible so much, but in interpretation of the Bible. And, and so I would say he is one of my favorite characters because I, I like to point to the fact that there are biblical characters who get a raw deal in interpretation, but the Bible actually treats them very nicely and, and has much more positive views of them. And so I think it's always important to, to look at the good and to try to, you know, protect people. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, so I guess those are my two answers. If you're really looking at books, I really enjoy Genesis. I really enjoy the book of Samuel. Those are different books that I really enjoy. But Well, you've made me want to be able to read the text in Hebrew as you talked about how beautiful <laughs> it is, because I know that's how you would be reading the the book of Ruth. Um, I am unfortunately not able to do so, so I will have to stick with my with my English translation. Okay. <laughs> um, but if any of our listeners want to read more about Dr. Horn Prouser's view on Esau, I suggest picking up her book as I'm going to do Esau's Blessing. I think it'll be a fascinating read. I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you again, Dr. Horn Prouser, for all of your thoughts and the conversation. I have learned so much from you and have been very much uplifted by this conversation. And I appreciate you. Thank and thank you. you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed this. And then I, I appreciate being in the conversation. So thank you so much. I will Love remind our listeners. Sorry, I will remind our listeners that this is part of the Come Follow Me Interfaith Conversation series. And we have several others that do correspond with the Come Follow Me curriculum. So check out our website for information there. It's thewidsofoundation.org. 
We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we are funded entirely by your generous donations. If you find what we're doing here to be valuable, please consider making a donation. They are tax deductible on the woodsofoundation.org slash donate. It's very easy and straightforward. And please look at our website or for emails coming about the next in our series of this interfaith conversation. Thank you again, Aura, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take good care. <laughs>